Hey, Dan, should I try to achieve fire? Only if you want to work yourself to death and suck the joy out of life. Welcome to Fleece Fest, where we talk about unhealthy obsessions with money. I'm Jess, and I 100% pick off pennies off the ground whenever I see them, which is totally normal and healthy. I'm Dan, and I live in Longmont, Colorado, which is Fire Mecca, which is the most intolerable thing about telling people where I live. Also, Jess, wash your hands. Street pennies are disgusting. (laughs) All right, Dan, so why don't you give us an overview of what Fire is? FIRE is an acronym. It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. It started in the early 90s with books like Your Money or Your Life, which essentially gave birth to a movement around the philosophy that work is bad and that the best thing you can do is aggressively emphasize the accumulation of wealth to an extreme early point in life so that you can achieve financial independence as quickly as possible and then spend your life doing what you actually enjoy. I read Your Money or Your Life, gosh, years ago now, I think. I remember really enjoying it. I don't remember the work is bad uh, takeaway, but I do remember it's burning me into aggressively saving. I also remember that I hated, hated, hated my job at the time. I was in construction and I... It really struck a chord with me, that book. Um, again, it really pushed me to save a lot more. Um, but I will say that I definitely spent way more time trying to be frugal uh, and save money instead of finding a new job, which probably would have helped me in the long run. But here we are. Uh, I was in a really bad headspace at the time, though, and I'm not sure if that was you know, a result of the book or not. But seriously, Dan, what's the problem here? I encourage all of my clients to save what they can, and it'll afford them flexibility in the future, including early retirement. So I want to differentiate what we're talking about here, because the philosophy itself is broad, and frankly, it's vague enough that it's easy to assume we're attacking something we're not when we talk about this. We're not here to attack the idea of saving a lot, or working hard, or building wealth, or working to live rather than living to work. None of those things are in of themselves bad. We are here to discuss the biggest issues with FIRE. Uh, FIRE emphasizes an extremely unhealthy view of work in general. It downplays the potential costs of having a financial obsession. It relies upon mathematical assumptions of future financial trajectories and events that may not come to pass. And those assumptions are so sensitive that even minor deviations from the assumptions can cause financial ruin. I will say that I've drifted into the occasional FIRE subreddit and hot damn, do they get toxic sometimes? (laughs) But maybe that's just a Reddit thing. I'm not sure. Well, speaking of toxic, uh, let's talk about that first issue then, an unhealthy view of work in general. Everyone has had a bad job or several bad jobs. Maybe you've never had a good job. Bad work environment, bad culture, bad manager, low pay and poor benefits. The things you can criticize a bad job for are endless, but work itself is actually important. Imagine an extreme hypothetical. Everyone on earth engages in fire and is successful and retires early. What happens? We all die. No one is growing food. No one is keeping the lights on. No doctors are practicing medicine. Our schools are shut down. Our water stops working. Everything. The vast majority of work in the world is not only important, it is necessary for the survival of humanity. Well, that's depressing to think about. (laughs) But I feel like this sounds like something that like Jamie Dimon would tell me along with like, get back into the office, right? I'm not worried about what everybody else is doing, Dan. I'm worried about what I'm doing. Uh, You know, I guess point taken, though. 
I mean, it would just represent the regression of civilization back to the atomized individual. It's a very Ayn Randian libertarian idea, but fundamentally, it would really just mean that we would lose all of the leverage and efficiencies of having a cohesive marketplace of goods and services. Even in a world of idyllic low scarcity, something as simple as building a pencil takes resources, skill, labor, and tools from all over the world. You cannot maintain your existing quality of life if no one on earth will help you and if no one will work. All right, to be fair though, Dan, on Ayn Rand, there is actually a yacht owned by an actual billionaire named after an Ayn Rand novel. I've seen it myself. So again, I'm not sure that I care. Okay, fine. Set the global viewpoint of this aside. Maybe it's not so extreme. Maybe the idea that everybody's going to do fire is probably not that realistic. But let's say you're doing fire because you hate working. Okay, that's fine. There are also plenty of people born into wealth that never work a day in their lives. Lucky them. But for most people, work is a meaningful part of their identity and how they find fulfillment in their lives. That's not to say that people should be overjoyed to clean toilets or dig ditches, but having purpose is a meaningful part of people's mental well-being. There's a health issue in retirement called rust out, in which retirements have not properly mentally prepared for retirement. There's a health issue in retirement called rust out, in which retirees have not properly mentally prepared for retirement. They find themselves bored, without social relationships, just sitting on their couch and watching TV all day. The result of that is a rapidly declining physical and mental health, leading them to early mortality in retirement because they haven't replaced the meaning and purpose brought to them by work and the social relationships that were a part of it. I think you underestimate the amount of time that I can play Stardew Valley or Star Wars, Star Wars Battlefront, Dan. <laughs> I mean... You do you do play the older versions or the newer versions that are not as good as the original version on Battlefront? Well, that, I, I mean, that's a conversation for a different day. Although I have to say, I probably spent about 300 hours in the past couple of months playing, playing Stardew Valley. Uh, anyway... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will say, though, that I have seen this happen with many retired clients back when I worked with retirees. Um, but honestly, the answer often is just as simple as finding some volunteer work. Uh, you know, it's the same type of conversation that you have when you decide to be self-employed, right? I mean, you've still got stress and deadlines, but it's on your own terms. Well, but that's just one part of it. I mean, next, there are the obvious psychological costs of financial obsession, and for that matter, health costs of financial obsession. Jess, I want you to read this excerpt from an article on fire in the Wall Street Journal. Sylvia Hall wants to retire at age 40. Her dream has a price, brown bananas. The 38-year-old Seattle lawyer is on a strict budget as she tries to hit her goal of amassing $2 million in assets by 2020. That means saving about 70% of her after-tax income and setting firm spending limits in every part of her life. She looks for brown bananas and other soon-to-be-discarded items from a fruit and vegetable stands to help keep her grocery bills around $75 a month. She walks to work so she doesn't have to spend money on gas. She borrows Netflix passwords from friends so she doesn't have to spend much on entertainment. And that last part, I think we we all do in some way, shape, or form with one streaming service or another. But if you could read just a little further down in the article. It took a Category 5 catastrophe for Sylvia Hall to start thinking of her changing her approach to her finances. When Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast in 2005, Miss Hall, then a New Orleans resident, tempor temporarily lost a home and a paycheck as the first payments were due on a $101,600 in law school debt. The uncertainty was so unsettling, Ms. Hall instituted a strict budget. She started buying discounted meat on its expiration date, 
took a second job delivering pizzas and began saving half of her $50,000 salary after her law firm reopened in 2006. Whew, okay. <laughs> I need to digest that for a second. Um, the fact that I buy discounted meat aside, this definitely feels like a form of compulsive behavior. And again, I'm not a therapist, but I understand that fear can be a strong motivator for actions. But this, I don't know, it just, it seems a lot more than that. I'm not exactly sure where the line is, as a few of these things on their own are totally fine, right? This feels extreme to me, though. I mean, $75 a month? I, I mean, this was published in 2020. Uh, I'm not sure what it was then, but right now the average person spends around $150 to $300 per month on groceries just for themselves, right? So that's a fraction of what somebody would normally spend. I'd honestly be worried she's not getting enough food or nutrients on that budget. That's a lot of discounts. And I think everybody would agree discounts are fine, but nearly expired food is a literal health risk. That's what Big Milk wants you to think, Dan. Well, as a shill for Big Milk, uh, let me just say, we have a woman uh, in this example who has lived through a major life and financial trauma, engaging in incredibly risky health behavior like buying expiring food just in an attempt to pinch pennies in order to attain an arbitrary financial goal of reaching financial independence by a certain point. And you see examples of this all over the fireplace, uh, or fire space, rather, Uh <laughs> People who have been through a financial trauma, whether it's their own or a parental figures, who then channel that untreated trauma into an obsession with developing financial independence. I mean, there's even a identified money script for this behavior, money vigilance, in which people who have the money vigilance script uh, too significantly or too strongly will obsess over money, hoarding and refusing to spend it uh, at a frankly, a pathological level. Okay, but Money Vigilance would make a killer superhero name. Dun, da, da, dun. Uh, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Uh, albeit, I think it would probably be morphed into a horrible The Boys-esque Homelander thing. But they, regardless, here's the dangerous part. There are tons of blogs, videos, and books on fire that will often show or misrepresent the research on financial independence. So, for example, tons of blogs will state the rule of 25, in which you need to have 25 the, times the amount that you want to live on saved up. Jess, does the rule of 25 remind you of anything? Isn't this based on Bengen's 4% rule, where as long as you don't draw more than 4% from your portfolio in a given year, your retirement assets are fine, right? That, that if I remember correctly, is pretty outdated at this point. Uh, I, I've, got a, I've got a call out that we apparently have a different way of saying the name here. Bengen versus Benjen. Benjen? Really? Benjen. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Benjen. Uh, but if it's Bengen, that's a pretty, pretty sweet name. <laughs> That said, yeah, exactly. It is Bill Benjen's uh, 4% rule, which is actually just a research finding. It's not a rule. Uh, so for example, they will say that if you want to live on $100,000, you need to save $2.5 million to have that forever. But that's not actually an accurate representation of Benjen's research finding, nor does it account for the time horizon that that research finding portrays, which is that a 4% withdrawal rate can last up to 30 years. But more importantly, Bill Benjen has redone the 4% research since his original take on it, uh, and it has changed more than once. So people are relying on a misrepresentation of decades outdated research and basing their entire financial life and financial future on it. Woof. 
I've seen this rule of 25 as well out there in the universe. And I, hey, I completely understand its appeal, right? Having a definable number to work for is appealing as all hell, right? <laughs> but it neglects things like fluctuating tax rates, increased retirement expenses, and varying rates of return on different investment accounts, or excuse me, uh, varying tax rates, especially on different investment accounts. You know, the whole movement actually makes me laugh because it's triggering a perfect example of a flaw in financial planning theories. Uh, so there's a theory called the life cycle hypothesis. Uh, it's been around since I believe the 60s. And it articulates that the behavior of people to borrow early in life, build income and wealth through the middle of their life, and then spend down their assets later in life as sort of a basic structure of of the human financial life cycle. But one of the key assumptions of the theory is that people know exactly what they need to do, make all their financial decisions with a perfect understanding of their financial future, and have the skills and knowledge to make those assumptions and execute on them. And these assumptions are also present in the assumptions and philosophy of fire. But the irony is that the behavioral life, or sorry, the life cycle hypothesis was amended or corrected by the behavioral life cycle hypothesis decades later, which pointed out that all of those assumptions are not only implausible, they are fundamentally impossible to actually perform, let alone for people with limited financial literacy, which is the vast majority of people, not only in the United States, but in the world. All right, so the methodology is flawed, motivations may be flawed, and capitalism is definitely flawed. But really, what's the problem with any of this? If someone wants to save up, stop working, and live their life the way they want, why not? Well, just as we said at the start, there is nothing wrong with saving responsibly or even aggressively with the intention of retiring young or at least being work optional at a younger stage in life. Uh, you know, people talk about their emergency fund with fun names like fuck you money, uh, you know, or, or do what I want money or that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with wanting to build that up. I mean, as, a, as financial planners, you and I both help people do this every day. My biggest beef with FIRE is really the business model around FIRE, because like all popular financial concepts, there is, of course, money being made on this idea. How are people making money? Of course, people are making money. Who am I kidding? How, how did I not know that people were making money here? <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like there's an unstated rule of FIRE, because once you accomplish FIRE, or even if you're just serious about FIRE and you're on the path to FIRE, you must start a blog... Twitter account or YouTube channel about fire and make your full-time job telling people to do fire. Yeah, it definitely seems like a lot of people in the sphere of blogging fire um, have blogging and, and talking about fire being a passive income stream and contributing to their early retirement. But whatever. So really, you never actually retire. You just get your new job as a fire influencer, basically. Exactly. It's a fire pyramid scheme, essentially. You just start getting people to pay you for courses on fire or visit your website and videos for ad traffic or get paid to do financial commentary from a fire perspective on the news uh, and just trade in whatever your old job was for being a fire influencer. And then, of course, there's also the phenomenon of the fire liar. The what? The f <laughs> fire liar? A fire liar is someone who was born into a family that was already wealthy or had a huge amount of money, who was essentially financially independent from birth with the blessing of their parents. These people less often will start blogs, uh, but you'll read articles about from, about these people all the time, how, how this 23-year-old is debt-free and owns their home free and clear and is already retired. And without fail, about two-thirds away into the article, it'll come up that their college was paid for by mom and dad and their house was also paid for by their parents 
and that they have a multi-million dollar trust left to them by their grandparents or something. These are people who were born wealthy who are now just telling some dumb reporter out there that they are financially independent by their own means. Oh, and by the way, I got a couple million dollars worth of help from mom and dad. Well, to be fair, I think I remember the one that you're talking about with the with the, the you know million dollar trust, um, and it was a satire piece. <laughs> but to be fair, it is satire for a reason. It is really fun to look at some of these clickbaity articles and try to dig in where that person got their leg up. Uh, and, and not that I'm knocking legs up, right? I, I've taken happily my fair share of, of legs up. But it's cruel to sell this fantasy that you can do it too yourself if you just try, right? And also you'll need about 30K a year from your parents. And I mean, who doesn't have 30K a year from their parents, right? Like that's that's a very normal, common <laughs> American thing that your parents are giving you around the gift tax limit exemption every year. Look, at the end of the day, there is nothing wrong with a genuine interest in fire. It is okay to fantasize about being free of your crappy job or just having some more free time or simply just wanting to have the money and the time to pursue your interests or to make different life decisions without the stress or pressure of financial limitations being a part of it. I get that. I am sympathetic to it. I really am. But anyone considering fire really needs to think seriously about whether trading their 20s and 30s in for a slavish and fanatical obsession with money and working just so they can get bored in their 40s is really worth it. Life is long. A genuine retirement starting in your 50s or 60s will probably last decades. So whether you want to live to work or work to live is a personal choice, but people really should stop and think about whether a fanatical obsession with money really is living a meaningful life or whether they should simply work, save responsibly, and enjoy themselves as they go. So if you want to spend all of your time worrying about money more than you already do, burn yourself out, and still probably go broke after retirement, check out Fire Culture. Fleece Vests is produced by Daniel Yerker and Jessica Gettle. Daniel Yerker is an investment advisor representative of My Wealth Planners, a registered investment advisor in Colorado, and Jessica Gettle is an investment advisor representative of Pavilion Financial Planning, a registered investment advisor in Pennsylvania. Our theme song is Dr. Yes by Yari. Nothing discussed in this podcast is investment advice or any other form of advice, and the podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. If you make investments or other financial decisions because of the podcast, frankly, you weren't listening. So is Mr. Money Mustache actually famous in Longmont? Not really. If you mention him locally, no one knows who he is. But every time I tell people in finance that I'm from Longmont, I see their eyes light up and they go, oh, that's where Mr. Money Mustache is from, right? (laughs) But doesn't he have a co-working space there? Uh, Supposedly, it's like a mile from my house. It's across the street from a nice beer place, but it is essentially empty every time I drive past other than this like weird mannequin of like a guy like punching the air. Well, I I can't imagine uh, why anybody wouldn't want to hang out in a room full of people who think they know better about your money than you do. Oh, shit. That's basically all Fintwit. That is all of Fintwit. (laughs)